and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast and legal scholarship. I'm your host, Lu Nguyen, a college student and the co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy research organization based at Oberlin College. My guest today is Andy Wright, senior fellow and founding editor of Just Security and partner at KNL Gates. We will discuss his article, Executive Privilege and Inspectors General, forthcoming in the Texas Law Review. Welcome, Mr. Wright. Thanks for having me. So let's go over why did you write this paper and what's the main crux of your argument? Yeah, so I wrote this paper as part of the Texas Law Review Symposium on Restoring and Reclaiming uh, Constitutional Norms. And it is born out of my experience working both in Congress on the uh, House Oversight Committee and in White House Counsel's Office. Uh, And my experience as it related to inspectors general, um, you know, so the basic idea is that uh, inspectors general, because they are housed uh, on the org chart within the executive branch, um, but are statutorily created with a mandate to assist Congress in its oversight responsibilities end up in a tug of war between the branches on information access review uh, disputes when Congress is seeking to get information from the inspector general uh, that the home agency is deems to be potentially uh, subject to executive privilege. So the main theory behind the paper is that in that space, uh, in addition to the sort of formal questions about whether or not executive privilege uh, applies to information that's provided to inspectors general by their home agency, but also the underlying incentives that creates um, with respect to the home agency's cooperation or lack thereof with their inspector general as a potentially unintended consequence of Congress using inspectors general as a backdoor to obtain potentially privileged information from the executive branch. So can you talk a little bit about inspectors general, how they came about and what their particular role within uh, the executive branch and the legislative uh, responsibility for oversight is? Yeah. So outside of the military context, which has a more unique and, and storied history, the modern inspectors general are a function of statute, and they're fairly recent creations um, by Congress to put sort of an ombudsman role housed within the executive branch. I think it's they're both uh, a function of Congress's recognition of its own limitations, um, both as a matter of, of its ability, um, its competencies, its the size of its staff, and its competing obligations to be able to conduct uh, as fulsome of oversight uh, of the executive branch as it would like to, and also a recognition on some level that um, agencies need to have some sort of uh, internal accountability mechanisms that have a degree of independence, even if they're not uh, constitutionally independent as a matter of separation of powers. And so they've really become an important part over the last 30, 40 years of the overall uh, modern administrative state and the, and the overall accountability mechanisms that include congressional oversight, criminal law enforcement, regulations, and then the accountability community, um, especially uh, the inspectors general themselves. 
So can you expand a little bit on this kind of awkward position the inspectors general are in in respect to separation of powers? Yeah, sure. So the the situation is often the case where there's some sort of controversy at an agency. Um, and, you know, perhaps it's that the inspector general has taken on an investigation because a whistleblower has gone to them or some sort of internal executive branch reporting launched an investigation and then Congress is interested in the inspector general's findings. Or it can also be a situation where the it is Congress that's identified a controversy or potential controversy within the executive branch and has made a request of an executive branch in, inspector general to conduct an investigation. And so in both situations, you have sort of the, a traditional uh, information interest in Congress in oversight and investigations to find out uh, about potential wrongdoing within the executive branch. And you oftentimes have an executive branch that deems some or all of the information related to that investigation as potentially uh, being confidential and perhaps even subject to executive privilege. And so one of the things that happens is as um, as the inspector general starts to investigate, they gather, you know, they do traditional investigative functions, they interview people, they gather documents, they often have, you know, their own independent access to agency servers, et cetera, to be able to obtain records. And then they have gathered information and their traditional function is to issue a report. Um, and it's it, much like Congress, you know, most of the information that comes out is informational. Um, and so then there's a shaming process or there can be referrals to law enforcement for prosecution and, and more significant investigation. Um, and in that sense, that information then can be used by Congress to augment its own oversight ability. So if, if you look, you know, Congress very frequently has inspectors general testifying before Congress about various investigative activities and audits and reports that they've done of the executive branch. Where it gets more tricky is when Congress says, well, we'd like the department to give us documents related to this misconduct, potentially. And the department says, well, you know, category A of these documents relates to deliberations within the agency. And we're concerned that if we give these documents over to Congress, that will have a chilling effect that would be unacceptable. Um, and our, uh, our employees within the department and the executive branch won't have, be able to have the kind of fulsome debate that's necessary to move forward. Category B of documents uh, contains some privacy interests. And then, by the way, there are three communications with you know, that involve representations about the president and those are presidential communications. And we think all of those things should be withheld uh, from production to the committee because the executive branch has longstanding confidentiality interests in them. And then Congress turns around and says, well, A, we want them from the agency, but B, we note that you did provide that information to the inspector general. So we'll just go to the inspector general, cut out the middleman, and we'll have the inspector general give us that information instead. And that puts the inspector general on the horns of the separation of powers dilemma in a fairly untenable position um, because they're now the holder of the hot potato. And Congress has a lot of functional leverage over those inspector generals. They're their chief patrons. They're the ones who back them up when they're having trouble with their home agency. Um, and now they're coming to them directly and saying, we want your work papers. Um, maybe it's the information that the 
home agency gave. Another variant on the fact pattern here is when uh, Congress actually wants the work papers, like the investigative interviews um, uh, and work product of the inspector general's investigation itself. And that takes on an additional cast, which in, in which case the inspector general's office might have its own confidentiality interests um, and concerns about uh, its ability to conduct investigations if it's concerned that its work papers will have to be provided uh, to another branch. So it's it's a tough position for them to be put in. So can you expand a little bit on confidentiality, uh, the uh, executive privilege and the Freedom of Information Act, how inspector generals must navigate that particular terrain? Yeah, so the... You know, executive privilege is a um, a controversial and contested doctrine. Um, it is really a bundle of different types of theories of confidentiality interests within the executive branch that con- that the executive branch uses to withhold from various types of investigative bodies. Sometimes it's Congress, and sometimes it could be law enforcement or other uh, investigating bodies. And it includes things like, you know, the various components, presidential communications privilege, deliberative process privilege, uh, grand jury information. We're seeing a lot of fights about that right now between Congress uh, and the executive branch over the Mueller report. It can involve state secrets, United States versus Reynolds. Um, It can involve potentially, in certain cases, privacy information or it could involve, say, there's an adjudicative process that's happening within the executive branch, um, and there might be an a, a, you know assertion by the executive branch that Congress receiving information about that ALJ uh, process could itself be corrupting and politicizing. So that so all of those things at times, Congress um, might request them, and the executive branch might assert that they have a confidentiality interest in them that should defeat Congress's interest in them. And so what executive privilege is, is both a description of the legal doctrine associated with those uh, types of confidentiality interests, but it's also the actual act of the president asserting a privilege. So you can have things that could potentially be privileged, but the president determines that they're not worthy of the constitutional invocation to say, I, you know, I'm going to spell, spend my capital as president to say that this stuff should be withheld. And, um, you know, that in and of itself has a narrowing effect because the president's attention is limited. And, you know, it's, it's a big deal to go to your boss, having had to do this and say, you know, I've handled my legal portfolio so badly, I need you to actually spend some of your capital that you want to spend working on making health care available to people on, you know, telling people you're not going to give documents to Congress not a super comfortable conversation to have. Um, but, you know, I think it is at its core, it's an important doctrine. And there are lots of situations where, um, you know, there are real tangible detriments to government functions within the executive branch if people feel like it's a fishbowl. And you want to be able to have uh, a degree of candor in meetings and be able to say some stupid stuff during a pre- brainstorming session that will help, you know, the ideas percolate in a way that will get the best ideas to come forward. At the same time, that's very much in tension with democratic accountability, transparency, and Congress's very important uh, institutional needs to conduct oversight of the executive branch and hold officials to account for misdeeds. So 
um, you know, it's it's not a popular doctrine and it should be a narrow doctrine, but it is nonetheless uh, a very important doctrine and it's under great stress right now given the current political environment. So how so how do inspectors general, people within the White House itself and the legislature balance these concerns? Well, you know, if in a perfectly functioning system in which all agents are acting in perfect good faith, I think you have a situation where the executive branch is, um, you know, really trying to narrowly define its confidentiality interests and is trying to accommodate Congress um, with its legitimate information needs, uh, but is generally being fairly, fairly fulsome in its responses. And I think you have Congress uh, that would be respectful of the stresses that an inspector general might have with respect to being caught in between um, and would press your case, if you're Congress, against the home agency that's asserting privilege rather than trying to put the IG in a tough position. And then, you know, the inspector general, you hope, is playing it straight down the middle and trying to, um, you know, be an honest broker in fulfilling its accountability mandate with its oversight responsibilities, but also recognizing that it's kind of in the posture of a third party custodian of records that are really home, the home agency's records with respect to an assertion of privilege. Um, But, you know, in reality, there are those sort of institutional self-preservation and political sort of bureaucratic political incentives um, to, you know, aggrandize power, et cetera. And from that lens, you can have situations in which, um, you know, the executive branch is uh, using the threat of uh, provision of its materials given to the IG uh, to Congress as a pretext to not cooperate with an inspector general uh, investigation that it deems to be um, adverse you could have a situation where Congress is taking advantage of its leverage over the inspector general to try and obtain information um, through the back door that it probably should have to fight about uh, with the home agency. And you can also have inspectors general who really play both sides against the middle where they are acting in a way where, you know, if, if they feel that their interests are aligned with their home agency, they take the home agency's position and then they might turn around in another situation and leak documents or, or you know, uh, go to go to Congress for help when they feel like they're, um, you know, in a more adverse posture to their agency. And you know, of course, some of that is completely legitimate and defensible, but it can also get to a point where there's an accountability problem within that Inspector General's office because uh, they're not really um, they're using their leverage in two directions to maintain uh, some unaccountability for themselves. So you know, human beings. Um, fall short of, of good faith at times, and, and those institutional uh, dynamics can play out. So let's expand on to what are the particular risks to executive privilege by inspectors general? Yeah, so, you know, it's a little bit of a, <laughs> of a heretical question to ask, because, you know, not, there aren't a lot of voices out there trying to protect uh, executive privilege out in, in between the news media and Congress right now. But if you do take that doctrine seriously and you look at what are some of the threats to it, um, I'd say there are a few. Number one is if 
the executive branch produces documents to an inspector general that it deems to be confidential and potentially worthy of an executive privilege assertion, they lose functional control over those documents. So the first thing is really just sort of a possession is nine tenths kind of reality, which is they, you know, they can have all the legal arguments they want, but if an envelope full of those documents shows up at a congressional committee, it's the end of the discussion, um, and there's no chance to to um, press the legal case. So that's a functional uh, that's a functional problem. Two, there are two other legal threats potentially to um, potentially legitimate privilege assertions, and one is waiver doctrine. So, um, you know, like other privileges. Um, executive privilege can be waived if information has been disclosed that is the sum and substance of the information that the executive branch is trying to withhold as confidential. Um, there is some case law that suggests that that waiver should be construed narrowly given the fact that it uh, relates to government operations. But there's also other case law that suggests that executive privilege should be construed narrowly because of a democratic interest in accountability and transparency. Um, so that's a little bit of a jump ball, but there's a there's a fundamental uh, question that suggests, well, if the executive branch cooperates with an inspector general and actually provides an interview or documents, does that it's, that move itself constitute waiver? And I think that the general consensus is that it does not, um, but. As an analog in the current environment, you know, there's an argument right now that the White House agreeing to cooperate with the special counsel, Robert Mueller, um, itself created a waiver. And so that same type of argument, which was an intra-executive uh, cooperation, right, the White House cooperating with someone who's uh, a subordinate in the Department of Justice, is, is sort of analogous to an inspector general cooperation. But I think the better argument there is that that is not waiver. The third one, which I think courts have taken more seriously, is the fact that executive privilege is a qualified uh, doctrine, which is important. Um, it's not an absolute privilege. The president can't just say, I'm not going to give this information, and that's the end of the discussion. Um, it is generally amenable to judicial review at some point, um, and it ultimately is a balancing test between the investigative institution's needs, whether that's Congress or a grand jury, et cetera, and the strength of the confidentiality interests asserted by the executive branch. And where that plays out here is that in the Operation Fast and Furious uh, congressional subpoena litigation that I was involved in when I was in White House Counsel's office, there was an inspector general report issued by the Department of Justice that related to the subject of the congressional investigation in which the executive branch had provided information to the inspector general because it was housed within the executive branch that it would have deemed privileged vis-a-vis -vis Congress. So basically, the inspector general got access to more information than Congress was being given access to. The executive branch on the theory that the inspector general will look at it all, make top-level findings, and then Congress can accept those findings and do what it needs to as a matter of legislative action or other uh, accountability act acts. Um, but Congress took the position that it was more of a waiver. And when 
the uh, court, federal district court in D.C., Judge Amy Bourbon Jackson looked at it. She decided that it wasn't a waiver as a formal matter, but that because the information contained within the inspector general report was based on uh, the substance of information that the executive branch was withholding as confidential. And because uh, a significant portion of that information uh, had been disclosed in that matter, the overall confidentiality interests of the executive branch in the information that was not disclosed in the report and was still being withheld from Congress was sufficiently weakened that uh, the legislative need of Congress overcame it. So it wasn't a formal waiver like the executive branch waived by, uh, by cooperating with the inspector general, but that the inspector general's report became itself a de facto waiver uh, for the executive branch because the executive branch could no longer rely on the strength of its confidentiality interests. And so that became uh, the animating principle in the, in the judge's order that uh, the executive branch should have to disclose large swaths of the information to Congress. So what are the potential impacts of the, uh, of the events that happened during the Fast and Furious case? What's the impact to uh, inspectors general and uh, executive privilege in the future? Yeah, so I think that the big risk is that, you know, it's never <laughs> – it's never easy for an investigating body to pry loose information that is unflattering from an agency. That's just a dynamic of investigations across any platform. And when you've got uh, a ruling out there like the one in the Operation Fast and Furious case, it, it uh, increases the incentives within the executive branch to not cooperate with their inspectors general on the theory that, well, if we give you this information, if we can, if we sit down and make personnel available for interviews, if we give you access to all the records you want to look at, that that will then basically be tantamount to giving it to Congress because the courts aren't going to back us up, that there are some things you should be able to see inspector general that Congress shouldn't. So therefore, we're going to use that as an argument not to cooperate with you at all. And in that sense, that could really frustrate the mandate of the inspectors general and something that I'm quite concerned about. So now for the big question, why do all of these developments matter? Well, they matter because they all go to the function of our government. You know, we would like to live in a safe, secure uh, functional government that has is clean. I mean, that has people operating um, with the best interests of the public at heart, and that is done without corruption and is and is providing the best decision making on the American people's behalf. And what's so hard about this is that uh, all the actors in this little melodrama um, have a piece of that puzzle that they're involved in. So, you know, the executive branch is doing all sorts of great things on behalf of the American people, but also makes lots of mistakes and has some people that are engaged in misconduct. And one of the, you know, central, uh, design, um, advances of the American system, constitutional system was taking that Montesquieu idea of dividing power, uh, as a protector of liberty and having, um, you know, a system where we have some checks and balances and we have um, accountability where one branch is looking at other 
branch's conduct. And so Congress has a very important role to make sure that co- not that the executive branch is on the straight and narrow, the executive branch can articulate the reasons that it's doing things, um, and that we can ferret out waste, fraud, and, and abuse. And the inspector general is also a critical uh, element in that overall scheme. And so the reason this is important is that we need all three uh, working in, at their optimum. And so finding the right strike uh, balance to strike uh, as they are engaged in these lines of tension is important. And, you know, uh, my concern is that I want to make sure that we are resolving disputes between Congress and the executive in an expeditious and principled way. And, you know, the courts are, are getting more and more drug into that, and they're going to have to take uh, seriously the timeline with which they decide those disputes, and they're probably going to have to do it more quickly. Um, than they have in the past. Uh, that needs to be done. And I think the inspector generals need to be sort of taken out of that equation so that they can do their job. Um, and that there's still an incentive. Um, and Congress can really give a full-throated backing to the idea that uh, the executive branch needs to cooperate with its inspectors general and that that won't come as uh, at the peril of potentially legitimate legal arguments the executive branch might have over the broader separation of powers questions. So as a final question, what should legislators, courts, and those in the executive branch take away from your paper? Well, I think one thing uh, is that the, you know, I think it, it it's trying to reinforce two things at the same time. One is that the executive branch has an obligation to cooperate with the statutorily created inspector general mandate, that the inspector general has an important role and that that needs to be adhered to and that Congress should be backing that up. But at the same time, I'm trying to tell Congress that they should not seek to use the inspector generals as a backdoor, uh, as a means of short-circuiting what will be an, you know frustrating and potentially drawn out fight with the executive branch over uh, important legal principles just because they have functional leverage over those inspector generals. Rather, they need to actually honor the um, the formal processes of, resp- of both either trying to accommodate the executive branch and find compromise or litigate the case and press their claims um, rather than unintentionally undermining uh, the inspector general's mandate by creating bad incentives for them within the executive branch. Well, thank you very much, much, Mr. Wright, for coming on the podcast to talk about your excellent Thanks work. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Who's that? Oh, hey. Shh. Secret Squirrel. Shh. 